You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then um, we're going to be right back in 1 Thessalonians, specifically chapter 2. Watch, as soon as I start praying, everybody will be like, quiet. All right, let's pray together. God, we just want to praise you and thank you so much for the chance that we have to gather together with other believers. God, we thank you specifically that we have the chance to study your word together this morning. I pray that you would teach us from it today. God, that you'd use the Holy Spirit to encourage us and convict us. And uh, God, we just ultimately want to be more like your son, Christ. And so God, we pray that you would use your word today to accomplish that in our life. You give us wisdom as we discuss what this passage means together and how we can apply it here at our church. God, I pray that you would specifically speak through me this morning. Um, God, that your Holy Spirit would would guide my thoughts and guide my words, and that ultimately you would be glorified and honored by what takes place here this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you will turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You'll remember, for those of you that have been here, we've been discussing the context for how this church was planted. Specifically in chapter 1, we talked about how Paul had planted this church through intentional discipleship. That he had gone to this location to establish this church because God had, through a dream, through a vision, specifically called him to the Macedonia area. And so as he's making his rounds in Macedonia, he continues to get pushed out because of persecution. And he eventually finds his way to this city in Thessalonica. He begins the process of establishing the church. And this letter is him writing back to the church that he established. He's writing back after he's gotten reports from Timothy about how things are going here. And we took away from chapter 1 that we see a process of discipleship that unfolds there for, for Paul. We said the process for us and, and for what Paul demonstrated to us is that discipleship starts with us being the type of people that are worth following. Paul says, you know what kind of men we prove to be. You know that we, we demonstrated in our life, in our doctrine, that we were the type of people worth following. And then he commends them for following. He commends them for taking the initiative to follow faithful men. So he said the step two is that we have a responsibility to get other people to follow us. So we become the type of people worth following. We get other people to follow us. And then step three is that we teach those people how to then lead others to Christ as well. We said the goal of discipleship is to produce people who are joyfully striving to bring glory to God by faithfully living in a fallen world while anxiously waiting for the return of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's been kind of the definition that we've been working off of for the past few weeks. A disciple is someone who's joyfully striving to glorify God, faithfully living in a fallen world, while anxiously waiting for the return of Christ. So there's a here and now perspective that I'm to live faithfully, but there's a, a coming perspective that I'm waiting for Jesus to come back. And I want to add to that definition this morning. that those things are true, a disciple is one who's joyfully striving to bring glory to God, faithfully living in a fallen world, Anxiously waiting for the return of Christ. But there, a disciple is also someone who is adequately equipping others to do the same. 
I think that was an element missing in our definition of a disciple. We haven't fully made disciples until those people are making disciples as well. That's the picture that we have in Scripture. We, we, we respond to Christ. We respond to the gospel. We teach people how to do that. We, we share the gospel so that they're now striving to bring glory to God. They're, they're faithfully living in a fallen world. We're teaching them sanctification. We're teaching them how to follow Jesus. We're teaching them about the coming of Christ. So they're anxiously waiting for his return. But we have to equip people so that they can teach others. And we see this, we see a similar pattern by Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Towards the end there, when he's talking about their reputation, in verse 9 he says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The idea of turning and serving and waiting is our description of what a disciple is. And then tacking on to that, our responsibility to lead others to turn and to serve and to wait as well. Last week we transitioned into chapter 2. I want to read those verses again to set the context for where we're going to be today. It says in verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man but to please God who tests our hearts. And we really honed in on that phrase that we've been entrusted, entrusted with the gospel. And we said that that word communicates responsibility, responsibility to take care of what's been entrusted to us. And so I gave you a five-point description last week of what it means to be entrusted with the gospel. We said, number one, that it means to endure in it. That verse 1 and 2 says that Paul was met with conflict, As he sought to do ministry, as he sought to spread the gospel, he was met with conflict. Every time he turned the corner, he found resistance. Every time he was sharing the gospel, there was resistance. And it's true to say that when a a faithful gospel is presented, it it will bring about resistance. It'll be offensive. Mark Dever says that if, if you're presenting a gospel to people that's not offensive, then you're not presenting the right gospel. Now, we don't mean that we're offensive in our methods. It's not that we become offensive in our methods. It's the message that becomes offensive. And the message of the gospel is offensive because it tells every single person that they are not good enough. Everything inside of them says, try to be good enough. Try to work your way to heaven. Try to earn God's favor through performance. And the gospel says, you've wasted your life trying to do that because it's impossible. So it's offensive In the sense that it tells people they can never be good enough to earn God's favor. It's offensive to say that their works are no good. And so Paul was finding that resistance as he spread the gospel of God. Number two, we're told to grow in it. Because in verse three he says, for our appeal does not spring from error. Paul says the gospel that I'm sharing is a true gospel. There's no error in it. And we said that if we're entrusted with the gospel, we have a responsibility to know it. 
so that we can share it in a way that there's no error. That we know the gospel that scripture presents and we're able to share it and present it with others without error. We have to grow in our knowledge of the gospel. Number three, we have a responsibility to protect it. To protect it, it says that there's no impurity, there's no attempt to deceive. As we're growing in it, we have to protect the gospel because there are people in, in our Christian culture even that want to pervert the gospel, that want to tweak the gospel, that want to change the gospel. They want to change the purpose of the gospel. And this is stuff that's available in our local Christian bookstores. We have a responsibility to know the gospel by growing in it so that we can protect it. Fourthly, we're to reflect it. We're to reflect the gospel. It says there's no impurity. There's no impurity in Paul's desire to share the gospel. That he's living a life of, of, of purity, a life that's been affected by the gospel. There's no desire to deceive. Because number five, he's trying to declare it faithfully. He's trying to declare it faithfully. He says in verse four, just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. We said ultimately that Paul clues us into how comforting it is to serve an omniscient God because he says in verse four, We've been approved by God to be entrusted with this gospel. That ultimately in God, when we say he's omniscient, we mean he knows everything. That an all-knowing God looked at you, adopted you into his family, therefore entrusting you with the gospel. Which means God stamped his approval on you and your life in saying, I want you on my team. I want you in my family. I want to entrust the gospel that saves the world into your hands because I trust that you can take it effectively to others. We don't have to wonder if we're an effective enough speaker. We don't have to wonder if we're good enough at sharing the gospel. Because God has already approved us to do it. God, in his all-knowing ability, has already looked and said, Yep, they've got everything I need for them to share the gospel effectively. Especially when I'm empowering them with my Holy Spirit. Paul says, I can speak boldly. He says, I speak with boldness there at the beginning of chapter 2. I speak with boldness because he knows that he's already been approved by God. He knows he's not trying to please man. He's seeking to please the king that has already approved of his efforts. Which brings us to verses 5 through 8. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Number six, in what it means to be entrusted with the gospel is that we have a responsibility to invest it. We have a responsibility to invest the gospel into other people. Paul says we were willing to share the gospel, but not only the gospel, we were willing to share our very lives with you. Now these Timothy passages that are out beside these 1 through 6 are references that also use this word entrustment. 
It's the same idea. Paul uses this idea in other places and says that we've been entrusted with the gospel for these purposes. And as I was putting this together last night, I was like, man, I see it so clearly here that Paul's saying that we have a responsibility to invest it. I wonder if he said it anywhere else in the New Testament. I said that would be really convenient for me to keep my pattern here of First and Second Timothy passages. And then lo and behold, I come to Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is Paul talking to Timothy, a man that he's invested in. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's the same idea, that same word there, that entrustment. He says, Timothy, I've poured my life into you. I have shared the gospel with you. I have shared the full gospel with you. I've taught you how to follow Jesus. It's now your responsibility to entrust that same gospel to someone else. You need to find other men that you can entrust that gospel to, and then they need to turn around and do the same thing. Paul says we've been entrusted with the gospel. It means that we have a responsibility to endure in it despite conflict. That we, that we grow in it, we protect it, we reflect it, we declare it. And then ultimately we invest it for the purposes of it continuing on. We invest it. And he tells us, he tells us in these, these three verses here, or four verses in 1 Thessalonians 2, he tells us how he came to this church at Thessalonica. Verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery. So number one there in your notes, how do we entrust, entrust the gospel to others? Number one, we do it without flattery. We do it without flattery. Flattery carries the idea of telling someone what they want to hear as opposed to telling them what they need to hear. Telling someone what they want to hear as opposed to really what they need to hear. Remember, Paul has told us he's bold in his proclamation of the gospel. He's told us that he's not interested in pleasing men. He's interested in pleasing God, which is why he comes without flattery. He has no purpose in trying to, to butter somebody up for the purpose of sharing the gospel with them. Because he's not interested in pleasing man. He's not interested in telling this church what he thinks they want to hear. He says, I came without flattery. We also know that he's not relying on them financially. Paul, throughout the rest of this book, is going to remind this church that he worked with his own two hands so that they needed not provide for him financially. He said, I wanted to be so clear that my purpose in being here had nothing to do with your money, that I worked, I worked hard hours to make sure that you didn't have to provide for me. He says, which gives me the freedom to teach you honestly because I'm not looking to please you to, give, to have you give me money. Which is what we've tried to set up here at Sovereign Hope. We've tried to create a situation where, where this church does not need your money to survive. Because we at no point want to feel like we have to flatter anybody to keep them here to keep the checks coming in. We want to structure it to where there is no financial obligation to where we have to have money. Because we want to be able to teach the word freely, boldly, without having to flatter. Like so many churches are in danger of right now. There's so many churches that are looking at their, at their budget, looking at the numbers, looking at declining attendance. 
and feeling like they are going to have to do things to get people to come to make the, make the bills and, and the payments meet. And we don't want to be in a situation like that. We want to be like Paul where we say, we don't need your money. We don't have to flatter you. We can be honest and open as the Holy Spirit leads us and present truth boldly in the same example that he gives to us. Number two, he says, you know we came with no words of flattery, nor with a pretext for greed. So number two, we come without greed. That word pretext means uh, cloak. It carries the idea of us uh, hiding our real purpose for coming. We hide the fact that we're actually doing it for personal gain. Remember last week we said that at that time it was very common for religious leaders to come in and, and preach like Paul was doing for the purpose of earning money or sexual favors. Remember we said that that these guys would come in and they would create a scenario where they would, they would prey on women and make them think that by having sexual encounters with the teacher that it would provide a special connection to God. And Paul was being accused of this type of action. And Paul says, I come without any impurity. There's no impurity in my methods. There's no impurity in my message. I'm not trying to deceive you. I'm not trying to, to come in an attitude of greed. I'm not cloaking it. With some other purpose. I'm here for the gospel. I'm here to see your lives changed. I'm not pretending to come for that purpose with a different motive. For us, I think we have to be careful that we don't share the gospel in a way where we think we're um, earning God's favor through our efforts. I think that's our tendency. I don't think any of us would be accused of trying to share the gospel in Sonoy for money, probably. That would fall more on, like, us as leadership if, like, we're trying to enhance the financial situation of this church. I don't think Jesse has to worry about uh, being accused of sharing the gospel to, to gain money from people. We're certainly not, hopefully, in it for sexual favors like was common during that time. But I think what is very common today is we have people who are motivated out of a desire to earn salvation or add to their salvation by spreading the gospel. That's why you have Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons who labor tirelessly to share the gospel. Because for them, their eternal destiny hinges on their good works. That's why you've got Mormons who sign up regularly to go to the mission field. That's why Jehovah's Witnesses regularly give up their Saturdays to spread the gospel. Because their mindset, their belief is, I've got to do this to, to help my salvation because my salvation is not secure. And it's even apparent when the times that I've met with them and talked with them is there's, there's a sense where there's a cloak of greed there. You're here to tell me something, but it's not completely motivated out of love for me. You're, you're motivated out of love for yourself. You're trying to help yourself ultimately. You're trying to help your eternity Ultimately, And thank God we don't have to do that. We don't take the gospel to people to earn our salvation or to add to our salvation. We truly can come without any attitude of greed because this doesn't help us at all. This doesn't add to us at all. There's, there's nothing in it for us from a material standpoint in sharing the gospel. Paul says, I came without greed. Number three, he says, I came without self-glory. Without self-glory. And this may be an area that's a greater temptation for us. He 
He says, nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Self-glory carries the idea of, Paul says, I'm not coming for personal recognition. I'm not coming for compliments. I'm not coming for attention. I'm not here to, to increase my name in Christianity. I'm not here to impress the church at Jerusalem. That's, that's, that's kind of keeping an eye on, on what's going on right now. I'm not here to, to increase my name in the eyes of the other disciples that actually walked with Jesus. You know, I came on, Paul said, I, you know, I came along later than that. I didn't get to walk with Jesus during his ministry. Paul says, I'm not trying to increase my name or my status in Christianity. But I think we have to be careful here at Sovereign Hope that we don't become motivated to share the gospel or make disciples out of a desire to be known as a great Christian in the context of this church. Our motivation is not for you to look good at making disciples so that we can all praise your name. That's, that's a fleshly tendency that we have to fight. It's a fleshly tendency for us to think that, man, if I can get people saved, like people are going to notice that it's me doing it. Like I'm having a productive ministry. I'm the one that's making connections in my neighborhood. I'm the one that's meeting with people, and, and people are growing because of my ministry. Paul says, I didn't come for the purpose of, of getting compliments or for increasing my name. So it came without self-glory. And I think we see a pattern here where Paul was... Paul's always conscious of the fact that an omniscient God knew his thoughts and his heart and his motive. Paul recognized that he would be exposed eventually if he was not in it for God's glory. See what he says in verse 4. He says, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we, plea, we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul was so, Paul was so grounded in God's omniscience. He says, i got to come for the right purposes, because if I don't, the God who tests my heart, he'll, he'll identify it quickly. He, he knows everything, so I'll be exposed very quickly. He says the same thing in, in verse 5. He says, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness of that. He says, i got to come for the right purposes, because God is the one who knows everything. And if I don't, I'll be exposed. And he kind of shares the same thing when he says that often in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he says, you know this as well. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be. You know that we came and our, our ministry wasn't in vain. So we see that Paul's even aware that if I'm not coming for the right reasons, eventually I'll be exposed as well by you guys. God is witness. God knows my heart. But also you're going to be able to recognize my motives are impure as well. Number four, he doesn't come with flattery, he doesn't come with self-glory, but he does come with an attitude of gentleness. He does come with a, an attitude of gentleness. And this idea of gentleness, it carries the idea of kind, compassionate, patient. And there's a debate among Bible translators as to whether or not this verse really should be translated gentle, or whether it should be translated baby. There's some translators that believe this should really say, we came to you as a baby. Um, others say that it should be, we came to you gently. And, and the confusion lies in the fact that the word for baby and the word for gentle, the only difference is one letter. It's the letter N. It's the beginning letter. The 
The word for baby in the Greek is nepios, and the word for gentle is epios. And unfortunately for the translators, the, uh, the word previously to this word ends with an N. And so as they're copying this down the line through the centuries, there's manuscripts that have the N, and there's manuscripts that don't have the N. And there's a debate whether or not it was dropped because there was confusion over whether or not it should have been there originally anyways because of the, the closeness of the two ends. Ultimately, I don't think it, it matters because I think both ideas carry the same, the same thing. We come gently to, Paul says, I came gently like a baby. And when he says like a baby, he's simply meaning that he came in a childlike way, a lot of times in the way that we interact with children in a childlike way. I mean, if I were to go get Jack right now and bring him up here, um, and we were to walk together, I would have to walk at a much slower pace than I would if I was just walking back and forth. I would take his hand, I would walk into the front, we would, I would hold him. Um, for some reason, it's common for us to, to grab babies' bellies and, and tickle them whenever they're in our arms. Like we, we interact with children differently than we do someone who's mature. We, we, we talk to them differently, we play with them differently. When I was over at... Um, Adam and Jen's house the other day, I mean, Adam's rolling around in the floor playing with, with Jack. I mean, how awkward would that be if, if me and Adam were rolling around in the floor, you know, playing when he got home from work? Like, but it's not weird for us to see him do that with, with a baby. And Paul says, I came to you like that. I came to you as someone who was spiritually mature, but I didn't lord that maturity over you. I didn't come in a superior way and demand things from you. And come with a purpose of greed. I didn't come in flattery. I came like I would come to a baby to you guys. I came gently to you guys. Is the idea that he wants to convey to these people. And he's reminding them. He says, we came and he, and he gives this description. He says, we were gentle among you. Verse 7, like a nursing mother. Taking care of her own children. Like a mother nurturing a newborn baby, he came to feed these spiritual children. Now, how do you see the analogy of. How does this analogy compare when he says that sharing the gospel and discipleship is like a mom nursing a baby? How does that, how does that analogy of a mom and a baby compare to discipleship? Like, what comes to mind for you as you're thinking about that? Like, what stands out to you about that analogy? How, how is that similar? A mom nursing a child and, and a mature believer discipling a new believer? An intimate relationship. An intimate relationship, okay. You're very much aware of the needs of that child. You say, you know, every time that child makes a noise or a cry, you're like, okay, maybe it's time for you. Maybe it's constantly working to Right, yeah, there's an increased awareness about the needs of, of that baby, because there's an infancy there, because there's a, um, a very youngness uh, to that relationship. What else? Okay. Okay. Is there a different translation that says, like, nursing infant or whatever? Because the says, like, taking care of her own children. Yours doesn't say, like, a nursing mother taking care of her own children? Well, that's a mother taking care Yeah. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I mean, it just sounds like super intense 
talking about like a brand new believer, but I mean, if you've got somebody who's a young believer, it's not necessarily concerning them like somebody who can do nothing. Right. I think one thing that stands out to me is that a, a nursing mother is providing food for the baby as an extension of what she takes into her own body, right? Like she needs to be careful about what she takes in because it affects what goes out to the baby. I know Lauren has been conscious about like what she takes into her body right now during the pregnancy. She'll continue that mindset knowing that I'm feeding, I'm feeding my baby and it's affected by what I take into my own body. In the same way for discipleship, we feed other people what we're taking in. If we're not feeding ourselves, then we're going to be incapable to feed and help nurture someone else. We feed them based on how we're feeding ourselves. We're passing on what we're learning, what we're studying, and how we're growing. What we do with our own spiritual walk affects how we can pass that on to someone else. Right. Right, yeah, it's a huge responsibility to share things about God's word with someone else. You want to be extremely careful that what you're saying is accurate and faithful to how God has revealed himself. I think some other comparisons that can be made here is that when a mom has a baby, it automatically means sacrificing her needs and wants to meet the child's needs and wants. I don't know if you guys have seen the new, um, these Honda CRV commercials that are out right now. Uh, there's two of them that I know of where one, like, there's a couple walking down the street and the, the girl turns to the guy and says, I think I want to have a baby. And like everything stops around him and he's just kind of like, whoa. And he's like, but there's so much else I wanted to do. And like, he like transports himself. And he's like, I wanted to go spelunking. I wanted to build this weird robot. I wanted to go see the Northern Lights. Then he comes back to reality and he says, all right, but I got a lot I want to do before we have the baby. And the implication there is that when you take on the responsibility of having a baby, it, it necessitates that life changes. That my focus now is on the needs and wants of this baby. And that means that at times I'm going to have to sacrifice what I want to do, how I want to spend my time, how much I want to sleep, because I've got to take care of this baby who needs me. And Paul's saying that's the same when it comes to us growing people up in Christ. That we take on the responsibility that this is important. That discipleship is important. Pouring my life into someone else is important to where it may mean that it, it, it dictates that I've got to change my schedule around something. That when I, brought, when I got brought into the body of Christ, when I become a member of Sovereign Hope, which hopefully we've been able to portray in like the member covenant, it, it comes with expectations and responsibilities for you to pour your life into other people. And that may mean that you have to switch your schedule around. That may mean giving up things just like a mom or a dad would give up when they take on the responsibility of a baby. That it dictates that this is serious. That I've got to take care of somebody. I've got to invest in somebody. I've got to feed somebody. I've got to help them mature in their faith. And that becomes a priority in my life. And it changes my schedule. Right. 
that, I mean, that, that changes as someone grows in their faith, the amount of a time, the amount of time and attention given to that person changes. Obviously, in the, in the same way that as a baby grows up, I think there was probably a time where Paul and Timothy met regularly for discipleship for them to grow up. But then there comes a point where Paul says, Timothy, I'm going to leave you and, and you're going to do ministry on your own, but we're going to maintain a discipleship relationship. But it's going to be different now because you're older spiritually now. I'm still connected to you. I'm still checking up on you. I'm still invested in your life. But because you're now, you're now mature enough to invest in others, that relationship changes a bit. Number five, not only did he come with gentleness, he came with a mindset of generosity. He came like a, like a mom comes to a baby with that intense desire to care for and provide and nurture. But he also came with a desire to give. He says in verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Does anything strike you as odd in the type of words he's using in that verse, based on everything we've talked about in regards to this church? He says, affectionately desirous of you. I don't know about you, but that phrase just, it just sounds weighty. Like, you're talking about some intense feelings. He says, I affectionately desire you. He says, I'm ready to share my life with you because you have become very dear to us. Does anything strike you as odd about the language that he's using there based on what we've talked about in regards to this church? Okay. Right. Why is it, why is this odd? It sounds like to me like what I would tell this girl. Okay. Like that I was pretty in love. Okay. Like I know that um in Titus chapter two whenever it says that old woman puts the young woman to be like a mother and husband children, like literally to be affectionate or affectionate towards that. Okay. Yes, I mean, it's definitely intimate-type wordage that's being used. Anything else that, that would strike you as odd? How long did we say Paul was in Thessalonica? Maybe six months, like, max. He's using intense language... For a group of people that he has hardly really been around for very long. That's what's so striking to me. Maybe the closest that I've ever come to having these type of feelings towards a group of people in such a short amount of time were the summers that I spent at Snowbird. That we're doing such intense ministry with another group of believers that immediately you start to have a deep, intimate connection with these other believers that at the end of the summer, eight weeks ago, you didn't even know their names. And by the end of the summer, you'd go to battle with them anywhere. That's probably the closest that I've ever come to experiencing such an intense connection with a group of people in such a short amount of time. But we see Paul, who was only here for, for weeks, a matter of months, and he's using language where he says, I, I affectionately desire your, your spiritual growth. 
I, I'm, I'm desiring to see you guys to grow up in your faith. He says, you become very, very dear to us. He didn't have long to love these people. And I think it's important to note that Paul uses this type of language often with the churches that he planted. Which clues me on the fact he's not loving these people because they were especially lovable. It's not like he showed up and these guys shared the same interests as him and they just hit it off. And he was like, man, I just love you guys because, because I just enjoy being around you in the same way that you might enjoy being around a friend or uh, a family member. He's not loving these people because of their intrinsic qualities that they're easy to hang out with or they're, they're fun to hang out with and talk to because they have the same interests. He's viewing these people through the gospel. That God loves these people. God wants the gospel going to these people. So it's not a personal connection that he feels because of, of interest or personality. It's not that he just especially relates well to some of these people at Thessalonica. I think that's important for us to recognize in this church. There are going to be some people in this church that it's easier for us to love. It's easier for us to want to pour our lives into. And others that it won't be as natural for us to do that. And I think we have to be careful that we don't select who we do and don't care about and seek to disciple and seek to pour our lives into based on personal connections that we have with them. Paul loves these people not because of their intrinsic qualities that they have. He loves them through the eyes of the gospel. He wants to see them grow up. He has an intense love and desire for them in the same way that God has an intense love and desire for a relationship with them. His motivation was not out of compulsion. I mean, look at the language that he's using here. We're gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Paul's, Paul's uh, desire to disciple these people is not in response to a sermon where he was told to disciple people. His, his, his motivation for doing this is not out of being commanded to do it. It's out of an intense love for these people. The love that he has for them is motivating him to spend time with them and to care about their spiritual growth. We will fail to make disciples in this church if the only motivation is you doing it because I'm telling you to do it. it it'll break down eventually. It'll stop. You'll begin to look at your schedule and say, I don't have time to meet with people. I don't want to meet with people. It's too overwhelming to my schedule to meet with people. But if you, if you have an intense love for people, then you look at your schedule and you say, I've got to work it out because I've got to spend time with these people. I love these people. I want to see their spiritual growth happen. When, when the motivation is not because I've been told to do it, it's because I want to do it, that's when this church will be effective in making disciples. Paul's not doing it because he has to. He's doing it because he wants to. He says, I have, a, I have an intense desire for you. I want to see this happen in your life. Philippians 2, 14 through 18. We see another picture of how Paul has these same type of desires for a body of believers. He says, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be poured 
I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, I'm so, I'm so committed to your spiritual growth that at the end of my life, you're my crown. You're my joy. I want to know that, I, that my life was not run in vain based on your spiritual growth. He says the same thing in chapter 4, verse 1, basically. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul has an intense, an intense love for these people because of the gospel. He says, I'm ready to share the gospel, but I'm ready to share my life. He says, I don't want to just teach you. I don't want to just give you a message. I want to give you my life. I want to give it all to you. I'm not just interested in passing on a discipleship lesson and then being done with you. He says, I want to give you my life. I want to pour myself into you. Similar to how we've already said, how silly would it be for a mom to nurse their baby and then be done with the baby for the rest of the day? How silly would it be to see a mom provide the necessity, feed the baby, and then put it in the crib and not touch it the rest of the day? No, we would expect that that mom would invest her whole day for that baby. There would be time committed to that baby in addition to feeding. And that's the picture that Paul's giving us here in discipleship. He says, I want to feed you the gospel, but I also want to give you my life. I want to invest my life into you. And lastly, number six, not only did he come with gentleness and a mindset of generosity, a desire to give, he came with a goal for God's glory. He came with a goal for God's glory. Back in 1 Thessalonians. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Paul never loses sight of the fact that it's the gospel of God that he is sharing. It's his desire to see these people come to God and bring God glory in their lives. It's not about them honoring him. At the end of the day, as we make disciples, if, if disciples are honoring us and giving credit to us, then we've missed the point of discipleship. As we grow people up in the faith, it's got to be them reflecting glory to God for us to be successful, for us to accomplish what it is we're wanting to accomplish. Paul comes with a goal for God's glory as he comes to this church. Now, there's some implications that we see here in Paul's pattern. The first one. This is ultimately what Paul is saying. Instead of milking them, instead of coming and getting money from them or getting glory for them, Paul is essentially saying, I'm being milked. Instead of coming to milk them, Paul was being milked. He was presenting himself as someone to provide what they needed as opposed to coming to them like every other teacher in that time. Coming for greed. Coming with flattery. Coming to take. Number two, instead of using people, Paul was being 
used. That's the difference that Paul's trying to communicate to these people. He says, you know my ministry is not in vain. You know I came with this attitude. Basically, I presented myself to you and said, use me for your spiritual growth. I'm not here to use you. I'm not here for personal gain. I'm not here to milk you for all that you're worth. I'm here to provide the milk for you to grow up in your faith. Number three, instead of getting, instead of getting, Paul was giving. And ultimately, he's giving the greatest possession. He says, I'm here to give you the gospel. I'm here to give you the gospel. And that should radically shape our view of coming to membership here at this church. It's not what we can get out of this church. It's not what this church can, can give to us. It's how we're going to give in the context of this church. How am I going to come to this church, be a member here, and give of myself? How am I going to allow this church to get from me? How am I going to allow younger believers in this church to get from me? How am I going to come and give in this church? That's the attitude that Paul came with in discipleship. He says, I'm here. And I'm not here to just give you lessons. I'm here to to demonstrate what it means to follow Christ. I want you to use me in whatever ways you need to for your own spiritual growth. The application for us, and then we'll be done. A couple of ways that we're working through how this can happen in our church here right now. Now, I'm going to tell you up front, I have not figured out how discipleship is supposed to happen in the local church in the most effective way yet. But I can tell you that in planting this church, I've made a commitment that we will figure out the most effective way to make disciples the way that we've been commanded. I don't have all the answers for how discipleship works. I don't have all the answers for how we play catch up when most of us haven't had someone pour their life into us. But I'm committed to figuring out as best we can how to make disciples out of this church. We've said from day one we want this church to be known for discipleship. We want people to come in and know that there's a culture and an environment of discipleship here at Sovereign Hope. One way we see that happening is through C groups. We talked about this before. This is our small group setup that we're wanting to do here. And I want to explain a little bit more what that's going to look like. What we're adapting right now is what we would refer to as the one and one and one method. All right, so this is easy for you to remember because this is necessary for you to understand how this works because you're responsible for making it work. All right, the one and one and one method. Every one month, we're going to have you meet with your entire group one time. We've said this before. So every one month, you will meet with the people in your group one time, whether that's after church or we haven't, exi- we haven't decided exactly what that will look like. But once a month, you'll be expected to meet with everybody in your group one time. You will also be expected to, and I mean, this is what we're wanting from you and desiring from you, is that you would meet with one other individual in your group one time. Not the same person every month. Not weekly. One time that you make a connection with someone else in your group of the same sex. So this is how it would look. Portland's in a C group. She, uh, once a month, she would meet with her entire group, okay? And let's say that Trish is in her group as well. Then Cortland may call up Trish and say, Trish, you want to go get coffee tonight and just hang out and spend some time talking. 
That would be Cortland's obligations in her C group. She, she connects with her entire group one time a month. And she also seeks out someone else in her group one time a month. One one-in-one method. Secondly, discipleship. And this is where we're still trying to figure out the most effective way to do this. Because here, here's my fear. If we're not careful, we'll say that everybody out here needs to be discipled. We'll pair everybody up. And we will have no room for new believers to come in and be discipled. Here's my fear. If I'm meeting with three or four of you individually for discipleship. And a new believer were to walk in next week. My, my schedule's full and I can't possibly disciple a new believer. So what we are trying to do is figure out a way to get everybody caught up in discipleship so that our church can be ready when God begins to bring us new believers. Because I'm going to tell you, I don't want God to give us new believers if we're not going to be ready to handle them. I'm not okay with us, us having people get saved because of sovereign hope and then get stuck here in infancy because we don't have time to meet with them and disciple them and teach them the things that they need to know. And for a lot of us, we've had enough investment in our life. We may not call it one-on-one discipleship, but for the majority of people in this room, you have had enough personal investment in your life to be ready to make disciples. It's just a matter of taking what has already been invested in you and doing something with it. And so here's what we're, we're wanting to do initially right now, at least in the area of, of the guys. We want to, in a sense, temporarily suspend meeting with guys one-on-one for discipleship. What we want to do is say we're going to meet with guys uh, on a Wednesday night or a Thursday night, whichever one works best for you. And we want to use that time to coordinate our efforts to figure out how are we going to make disciples in this church. So instead of Tyson meeting with, with, with three or four guys, me meeting with three or four guys, we want to say let's all come together in, in two groups on a Wednesday and a Thursday every other week. And we're going to use what, what I'm trying to put together through the Matt 28 website of, of all the, the discipleship lessons that we feel like need to be passed on to a new believer. And we want to try to, to coordinate our efforts to figure out how are we going to teach people what they need to know to follow Christ. So that our schedules are freed up to where when new believers come into this church, we're ready to meet with them. We're ready to disciple them. Because they're the ones that need a lot more attention than, than some of you guys even need right now. I mean, if someone comes in off the street, gets saved, they've never had any discipleship, never had any involvement with the church, those are the guys, like we said, that are in, in real infancy, that need full attention. And so our desire is to to kind of catch everybody up together in, the, in that those two nights. Us work together about how to make disciples. Us work through the questions that we have. Us go over that material that, that I've already taught a lot of you already. Us, us take that material and say, this is how we're going to teach it to other people. A lot of you girls have already been paired up, in a sense, with discipleship. And we want that to continue. We want you to continue meeting with those that are discipling you. For those of you that maybe aren't meeting, then this would be a, a great opportunity for you to potentially meet with other women in the church to even figure out how are we going to make disciples. Especially if your husbands are coming to the groups 
that, that we're doing on Wednesdays and Thursdays, they're able to take home what, what we're talking about and then potentially the women getting together to even work some of that stuff out as well. And then lastly, in the area of missions, and this is where we want to get to. We want to be able to get to the area where we can, we can provide opportunities for you to interact with the lost, to share the gospel, and disciple new believers. I'm hesitant right now to do outreach as necessary as it is to get the gospel out, I'm hesitant to do it if we're not going to be able to, to provide them what they need here. Which means the urgency is great for us to get on top of this. For us to get to the point where we're ready to make disciples. <clears throat> so we can hit the ground running hard. We can be sharing the gospel. And we can, we can be rejoicing over the fact that people are coming to our church getting saved. Because we know we're ready to handle them. We're ready to take care of them. We're ready to teach them what they need to know. To follow Christ. We're still working out exactly how this looks. Um, yeah, I welcome your prayers. That we would figure out exactly how to create a culture and environment of discipleship here in our church. Paul came and said, I, I had a desire to pour my life into you. We want that for you guys as well. We recognize that we still have a, a long ways to go in figuring that out. But we're committed to figuring that out here at this church. Any questions that that, that leaves you as far as... Because um, some, some of that's relevant for membership, especially like with our small groups and how that's going to work. Questions that maybe that, that leaves you. Because if you think about it, if, if everybody's doing their responsibility in the small group setting, then nobody gets left out. Because we're not saying it's the leader's responsibility to contact everybody in the group. We're saying that everybody has a responsibility to meet with somebody in the group. So nobody gets left out if everyone assumes their responsibility of, of finding someone there in their group to meet with during the course of that month. But what we feel like is that it leaves your schedule open enough because we don't want to crowd your schedule with church things to where you're not able to invest in the lives of people. We want to give you exactly what you need and no more so that you're able to meet with these people that we're hopefully we're hoping we'll come to our church very soon through our efforts of spreading the gospel so that we can invest in their lives in the same way Paul did. Any questions or thoughts that that gives you? Yep. Uh, potentially, but like, if you were sought out by somebody, then you've met, you've met your, it's not that your expectation is you have to schedule something with somebody. Somebody gets to you first, then the two of y'all have hung out, and theoretically you're done with your, I mean, we want you to hang out as much as you want within the context, but we're wanting to make sure that at a bare minimum, people aren't being left out, and that. That community is being provided in that setting. Um, so for some people, it might end up being two times, um, but it may not. Other thoughts or questions about that? We're going to send out some information this week about the guys groups that we want to start and a little bit more information about what, that, what, we, what we want that to look like. So be looking for that if you're interested. Um, again, the purpose of that being to 
to hopefully allow us to speed up the process of discipleship, um, which would still allow us to potentially get together with each other outside of those groups for further discussion. But the burden of responsibility is not on Tyson to prepare discipleship lessons, me to prepare discipleship lessons, Chris to prepare discipleship lessons, that we kind of do that all at one time, and then anything outside of that is just application for what was being talked about at that, that meeting so that people's schedules are free enough to where they could meet with new believers as they start coming. All right, I'm going to pray for us. If you have other questions, I, I would please encourage you to, to talk to me about them because I want to be clear about what we're trying to do as God's showing us that. Because like I said, we're still, we're still in the process of trying to figure out exactly how this is going to work best in the context of our church. Let's pray. God, we do praise you and thank you that you have called us to be here, that you've called us to this area. God, we want to be faithful to share the gospel without flattery, without greed. God, we want to be able to do it faithfully like Paul called us to. Like He, he set the example for us through, through the power that, that you gave him through the Holy Spirit. He called this church to mimic that type of example. So God, ultimately, we want to respond to the great commission that Jesus gave to all his disciples. God, we want to be faithful to, to invest our lives into others for the sake of the gospel. God, we recognize that you approved us to entrust us with the gospel. And when you entrusted us with the gospel, you've told us to entrust that to other people who can teach others as well. So God, we want to be faithful to that calling. God, we, we, are, we are calling out to you for wisdom and how to do that. God, you know that our schedules are busy. You know that we have responsibilities. God, you know that time is precious in our context. So, God, we're asking for wisdom that you would, you would show us how to fulfill the responsibilities of a local church in a way that does not cripple our schedules. God, we also want to be a church that has enough time in their schedule to reach out to new people. So, God, I pray that you give us wisdom in knowing how to do that. God, help us to be about this business, not for our glory, but for your glory. God, help us to maintain that perspective, that we want to see people come to full knowledge of who you are. They're living their life in a, in a way that's bringing glory and honor to you as they wait for the return of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.